The reading today is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 802 of your Pew Bible. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of the donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on him, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Word of Lord, word of life. Most of you know that I love Star Wars. I'm of an age that I actually saw them in the theater when they were first out. You know, the first one that isn't really the first one? Yeah. So, see, I even remember what that's all about. And so when Disney decided to create their Star Wars world, I was so excited. And when I was in California... Several years ago, they had just opened. I went with my brother-in-law to Disney, because I always do. That's what I do when I go to California. And I just was overwhelmed that I was there staring at the real Millennium Falcon. I mean, I don't know if y'all have seen it yet, but you must if you are a Star Wars fan, because it's insane how incredible it is. Shortly after they opened... They built a ride called the Rise of the Resistance. I have tried to ride this ride six times. I have ridden it actually once. I was pretty sure after my trip to Disney World this last January that I was never going to get to ride that ride. But I was in California earlier this month, so my sister and I went to Disneyland, and I said to her, we must try to ride this ride. And look, the line is only 90 minutes long. Let's go. <laughs> she was like, I'm sorry, what? You know, because she used to have a pass, so she's already ridden this ride. But I was determined. I was going, this was going to be the time that I was going to get on the rise of the resistance because I'm totally a resistance person. So we get there. We wait in line. It actually wasn't 90 minutes. It was shorter. We get to the final room. Like, I can see the promised land, and I'm texting my friends who were with me in Orlando where we waited what seemed like 10 hours, and we get to the room, and then, or we didn't even get to the room, but then the ride broke. So we didn't get to go on the ride. But um, 
I texted them. I'm like, you wouldn't believe it. I'm in the room. It's coming. And no sooner had I set, hit send than the dreaded announcement came. The ride was down. I looked at my sister and I said, we are not leaving. <laughs> because last time we waited and we waited and we waited and I finally was starting to get claustrophobic and so we left and the ride started working. I'm like, we are not leaving. And I faced the door and I was like, here I am, one person resistance. No, two minutes later, cast members come in to escort us out of the room. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I am never gonna ride this ride, not a single time. But it happens that for our trouble, we were given a lightning pass. It used to be called fast pass, now it's called lightning pass, so you can get in the fast lane as opposed to the slow lane where you have to wait for 90 minutes or more. And we could use it on that ride if it ever started again or another ride. So my sister and I went off and about an hour later on the other side of the park, we noticed that the ride was open again. And so we hoofed it. And by hoof it, I mean like we practically ran. Not because I wanted to run, you all know me, I don't run, but because my sister walks so darn fast. <laughs> so we get there and we get in and we get into the fast lane because you know we have this special little thank you for waiting. Um, we're sorry, our ride broke past. And so we go in and we get to that room again. It's slightly different though, because this is the special people room, not the you had to wait in line for four hours room. So we're there and I'm like, this is so exciting. And I'm looking around and I suddenly realize we are the only people there. Which started to freak me out. And it kind of freaked out the cast members too, because we, they, the door opened. Oh, there we were. We were on the ride. And they're like, are you the only ones? And I'm like, right, yeah, okay. And so we get on the ride and I am like freaked out that we're the only two. I'm like, we cannot be the only two here because they put you right into the story. Like we are on the base where the bad people are. Like we're surrounded by stormtroopers and really mean looking women that's just telling us where to go. Like, we've been captured. I mean, this is not good to be alone in this situation. I cannot tell you the relief that I felt when we caught up with the sorry you had to stand in line forever group. Like, I was so relieved. Because truth be told, as much as I love my sister, and I know that she would go to the ends of the earth for me, she's not really a fight for the rebellion kind of person, I didn't want her to have her at my back fighting the empire. This whole experience and the amazing amount of people who chose to spend that particular day at Disney despite the nonstop rain had me thinking about crowds and the nature of crowds. We find ourselves in lots of different crowds throughout our lives, literally and figuratively, right? There's those groups of people that we choose to associate with, to run with, and then there are those that we totally avoid. One year, my friend and I had a plan to go down to Chicago, and um, she doesn't particularly care for crowds. I don't mind them. I'm an extrovert, so I'm like, yeah. And um, that, that week before, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And so then we tried to go to the Art Institute and found us with a million of our best friends smushed outside the Art Institute to celebrate. It was awesome, but if you ask her, it was awful. So sometimes we find ourselves in crowds we weren't expecting, and they turn out to be great. 
because crowds can help us feel safe. They can give us a sense of belonging. They can lift us up and encourage us to great things. They can also do the exact opposite. The term mob mentality is a real thing. We can choose badly as part of a crowd, be harmful to people, there were crowds gathered that day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Of all the stories that we will hear this week, this is the first of only two public stories, the two stories where we hear about crowds. Every other story is a private encounter between Jesus and his closest companions. But not today. Today we are all invited in. And on Friday, we will be invited in as well. So who are those in the crowds that came out to see Jesus? We don't know for sure. They came from everywhere, we're told. But I imagine that they were both the oppressed and the powerful, the poor and the rich, the eager and the ambivalent, the healed and the ill. I know for sure they were, are us, and we are them. But before we talk about this event that Matthew portrays in his gospel, we really do have to talk just a moment about the prophecy in Zechariah that he quotes, that he pulls on for his imagery for this story. The prophet of Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai's, putting his prophecy at the beginning of the restoration of the temple after the people have been in exile in Babylon. So somewhere around 515 BCE. Zechariah is split into two main sections. They call it first and second Zechariah because these two halves are clearly very different. The first half, we have eight visions that focus on real events and people, but give it a mystical twist. Think Revelation. These visions promise the restoration of Jerusalem where peace and fertility and security will flow freely, which will then make it attractive to the nations who will come and be a part of this beautiful city. The second half, while ending the same way, that Jerusalem will be the city that will attract all nations, the second half is where we see the condemnation of the foreign empires of the day. And then we also see encouragement for the exiles. The language of peace and security gives way to much more militaristic language, and God is at the center. God is the one speaking, not the people. So Matthew draws on the ninth chapter of Zechariah, which is in the second half, and before we hear of the leader of the resistance riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we hear the condemnation of the empire. Remember, the people have been in ex exile after losing to Babylon. But it wasn't just that they all left their city. Everything they held dear, everything that represented who they were, their value and their worth as people had been destroyed. Jerusalem was completely leveled. Nothing was left. For a lot of these people, they wondered if God had left as well. In the prophecy that is spoken, they are assured that they will return with strength, 
to overthrow their enemy and take back their city so they can rebuild. God is the divine warrior king taking the throne of Jerusalem from the foreign empires of the day and restoring peace and unity to her people. The crowds who hear this word were those who longed for that restoration and peace, but they also longed for power and vengeance against their enemies. So Matthew ties Jesus' riding into Jerusalem to this ancient prophecy so that we can more fully understand not only that he is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate, Emmanuel, but he also is making a political claim. Now, to be clear, when I say political, I'm not meaning partisan as we know politics today. I mean political in the broad sense of people working together to decide how we're going to be a people. Because for Matthew, Jesus is political. Jesus is God coming into our world and resetting it, upsetting the powers, the empire of the day that have strayed too far from God's own vision. Which, friends, should not surprise us. This is a claim that Matthew has been making since the very beginning of his gospel story. Remember King Herod and his encounter with those wise folk? King Herod was the client king of the Roman Empire, and he was so afraid of the possibility of Emmanuel that he chooses to kill all one-year-old boys so that Joseph has to flee with his newborn son to escape the persecution cradling in his arms the one who will turn the world upside down, as Mary tells us in Luke's gospel. This Emmanuel does not come to comfort, but to disrupt the world as it is known. And the powerful know it deep in their bones. The reality of this week that we call holy is that Jesus was the leader of a political movement that stood against the power of the day, which would have been the Roman Empire. Jesus boldly enters as if he is king, the political arena to proclaim God's vision of people being fed and cared for, healed and visited. People, each one having inherent worth because they are created by God. Jesus is disrupting the existing power dynamics but not only of the Roman Empire, but also of the temple. The people have gone astray from what God intended, and Jesus has come to restore God's vision. But that means that there will need to be changes, changes in leadership and changes in the people. For the first will be last, and the last will be first, Matthew tells us. For those who save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives will save it. The whole world is being turned upside down, and those in power know it. They know it in their bones. Today's crowds were shouting for Jesus to save them, but even they were not all in for what that would mean. As is typical of a crowd, we know that chants are a thing, right? We've all said some ourselves. They get everything going. But what they hope for, what we really want, requires much more than just 
chanting. It requires much of us who are chanting and those whom we are chanting at. Jesus is coming to change the whole system. And we as humans are usually, we're usually not down for that because we like homeostasis. We like things to kind of stay the same. We're okay with change just as long as it's not really big change that totally upends things. Which is why the other public story that we hear this week includes the crowd on Good Friday. They were the oppressed and the powerful, the poor and the rich, the eager and the ambivalent, the healed and the ill. They are us and we are them. Standing here today at the beginning of Holy Week, I find myself asking, what does this mean for me? Because I know this story inside and out. I'm sure you do as well. We've done this long enough that most of you probably know the stories that we'll hear on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We know that we might be challenged by it, but I don't know about you, I'm quite comforted by this whole ritual that we have because I know Sunday is coming, which is fine. But it also puts the story at an arm's length away. But we are called to put ourselves inside the story, to see ourselves in the stories, in the crowds, that one day cry, save us, and the other day cry, crucify him. It's a story that invites us to perhaps walk on thin ice with Jesus if we follow the metaphor that Pastor Stanton used on Wednesday. But this story this story that we kind of hold at arm's length and say, oh, those people, they just didn't know. It isn't those people. This story is about us. We are the crowd. The crowd is us. So I invite you this week to not only come to worship, but put yourself into the crowd, into the center of the story, to imagine yourself there in Jerusalem with the jubilant crowds who are waving palm branches and throwing their coats and singing Hosanna. But also to put yourself there in that living room where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, to sit beside Jesus as he prays that all nations be drawn to him, to look on as Judas begins to betray our Lord and Savior, his friend, his teacher, and offer up your own confession. Hear the words of forgiveness. To watch Jesus at the table with his friends, washing their feet, giving them hope to be a part of that crowd on Good Friday. To hear the stories of our ancestors and then to come here next week and hear what our God is willing to do for us. But put yourself in the crowd this week. What do you hear differently? What do you feel? How are you willing to align yourself with God's vision for the world? What are you willing to do to stand against the empire of our day. The empire that tells us we have little worth unless we have all the things and all the followers. 
We have little worth unless our face is perfectly sculpted every day before we walk out of the house. The empire that focuses on profits instead of people. The empire that would rather we stay silent in the face of injustice. Because friends, we are the crowd now. We get to decide. We get to stand before those doors and say, we will resist. So how are we, how are you going to align yourself or ourselves with God's vision? Can you see God's vision clearly? These are the questions that I am taking with me into this holy week. Because Israel saw God's vision. The people of Jerusalem saw it. They had Jesus. Our ancestors have seen it. But humanity has also ignored it and distorted it for their own power and wealth. We are the crowd, and we have heard about God's vision. But will we trust Jesus enough to follow him as he upturns the world for the sake of the world? Amen.